P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. It's Thursday morning. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified and hope this show is finding Every each and every one of you safe and sound and healthy. Um, and today I have a very interesting topic uh, with my guest Christopher Salgado. This is uh, talking about inter- international investigations, which I'm sure many of you are, are interested in. Certainly, I am. As um, I wouldn't know where to start doing an international investigation. So, welcome, Christopher. Hi, thank you, Francie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, do you go by Christopher or Chris? Chris is fine. Okay. All right. So, um, the government calls me Christopher, but I go by Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even tell everybody the name the government calls me. So, (laughs) Uh, that's funny. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, Christopher, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in. I noticed that you used to be with Facebook as a managing investigator. So what does an managing investigator do at Facebook? Well, yeah, I I was very fortunate, uh, incredibly fortunate to be brought on to to Facebook uh, to help them build out their investigations division. and uh, it was it was a really great opportunity. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. They they brought me over uh, first. I was a Pinkerton employee over there, a contractor for them, doing just as I said. Um, and then uh, I became a full time employee with Facebook, um, taking on some uh, different scopes, different responsibilities, still within the same uh, ideology or, or um, project of building their investigations division up. And uh, that was that was really. Um, uh, really interesting, very uh, exciting for me as well, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, really gave me a lot of opportunity to really kind of spread my wings and uh, see what I could do inside that uh, you know world's largest social media platform. And I'm very grateful at the opportunities that they they gave me there. So we we manage different types of investigations. So I was an investigator there and uh, managing you know, workload of investigations and, uh, again, building up the system there while I was there. Uh, we did, you know, your various types of investigations, um, you know, theft and, and threats and stuff like that. So, a, a lot, excuse me, Francie, a lot of stuff I cannot talk about um, sure. with my, sure. uh, you know, with having been on the inside of Facebook. But nonetheless, it was a very humbling experience. And I have to say, prior to Facebook move, I was uh, born and raised in Chicago uh, and I was a private investigator there for 15 years. And um, I would have to say, if somebody asked me in Chicago if I was a cyber guy, I would say, no, absolutely not. I'm not a cyber guy. I was more in the <laughs> physical realm of things, you know, insurance, surveillance, SIU work. And I did brand protection as well. But that was primarily on the physical side. Um, right. And uh, certainly on the Facebook side, it was a lot of physical stuff, too. But um, obviously, there's a lot of cyber involvement, such as 
cyber investigations, online investigations, right? Um, so they have a cyber team that's exclusive to a lot more deep dive, um, you know, uh, situations. Um, but nonetheless, I certainly dabbled into that, and it was very exciting. So here we are now in early 2021, and, you know, people ask me, not only am I a cyber guy, but they look to me as a cyber expert, and I'm really happy to have gained that, uh, that experience with Facebook. You know, it's fascinating. You're the first person I've ever talked to uh, who's in that position at Facebook or any social media organization. So what can you say that one or two things that you learned through that experience that translates to what you do now? <clears throat> yeah, I can. So one of the things that I learned about was, and I, I apologize, this might sound silly, but it is what it is. Um, I learned a lot more about cyber investigations or investigating people online, right? Um, surely I came with, <laughs> I thought I came with a, a cup of knowledge on how to do that, and I did, but it certainly didn't hold any weight to, you know, uh, what I learned over there, right? And <clears throat> and uh, it, was, it wasn't just exclusive to Facebook, it was, you know, the whole social media uh, platform system that we operate on, right? Twitter and and uh, YouTube mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And Instagram is obvious because Facebook owns Instagram. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I definitely walked away with uh, a greater um, skill set with being able to dig heavily on individuals for uh, in different types of investigations. Um, because every PI, if, if you're doing your job well, you do um, your due diligence before you step out that door for your surveillance, for your interviews, anything like that you do your online diligence, due diligence to make sure that you show up at the right time. You make sure you show up with the, um, the right information to ask the right questions, right? Because usually you don't want to ask a question that you don't know the answer to already. Um, so you want to go ahead and dig into that deeply. But if I may, I like to think that we hold a huge advantage over other folks because I was on the inside at Facebook. So, you know, I learned a lot of different things on how to go about stuff like that. And I'm very fortunate to be able to, you know, have an advantage with that skill set, certainly not the tools, but the skill set with uh, being able to, uh, to do that and pivot into my own operation here. Well, that's fabulous, and I, I hope you conduct trainings, <laughs> actually, <laughs> if we ever get there again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, my my company's new. It's just over two years old, and um, we're we're branching out into different types of investigations. And, and actually, um, you're not the only one that's asked me about training. Um, I've gotten some uh, some companies that have come to me asking to train their in- internal teams. I've gotten some individual um, uh, requests, ad hoc requests by investigators for the same. You know, conducting training. Obviously, there's some things that I'm going to keep internally to, to maintain my advantage, but, um, you know, certainly there's a lot more that I can teach uh, to individuals that might be doing their online investigations. And, and they're doing a good job. You know, PIs are doing a good job across the globe, uh, specifically here in the U.S. But, you know, again, I, I would like to think that I have a, a decent advantage over some others because of my background. I would definitely say that you do, and I'm going to be in touch with you later about training. Uh, so, have you have you done have you have you done any Zoom uh, based training at all? Any Zoom training? Yeah, have you done any Zoom platforms training? Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. I have. I've done it for a couple of companies already. 
Done it for a couple of PIs and uh, certainly interested in doing it more. Um, I also am a regular contributing author to uh, PI Magazine. And, uh, they, you know, I'm their, their uh, social media and uh, uh, cyber investigative expert. And we put out, I put out columns in there. Um, you know, it's a bi-monthly publication. And uh, PIs can certainly get kind of tips and tricks on how to dig deeper. And as you uh, mentioned earlier, you know, dig into the internal or international investigations. Because, um, you know, like I said, we're a new company, all points investigations, um, but we're, we've got a good trajectory and we've got a really good momentum going right now. Um, we're running cases internationally and I have PIs coming up to me fairly regularly and ask me, hey, Chris, how did you go from this to that inside two years, right? Um, and uh, a lot of that information is inside that article that I wrote, and certainly I can, you know, provide it to you on this show here. Um, but, yeah, definitely have done trainings before, anticipate doing more trainings as well for other folks that are interested in doing that. I mean, I also do dark web investigations. Um, you know, I, I've set up a lot of uh, different platforms uh, for uh, different types of companies to really dig deep into people, both or on all three platforms, you know, the social, um, or excuse me, the, uh, the surface web, the deep web, as well as the dark web. Oh, very good. Well, you mentioned PI Magazine. Of course, PI Magazine, Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusimelli are uh, faithful, contrib- are faithful sponsors of this show of PI Declassified, as well as formerly Jimmy Messis and his wife, uh, Ro Messis. Uh, were as well. So uh, we love PI Magazine, and uh, the the article that we're going to be talking about uh, in international investigations or the road to conducting international investigations is found in the uh, November December 2020 edition of PI Magazine. In case anybody wants to read it, but we're going to talk about that. So, yeah, so it's really yeah. I'm I'm, I'm very <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. Go ahead. What say what you're going to say? I was just going to say I'm very grateful for Jim and Nicole uh, to take me on uh, as an author. And I've, I, that's new as well. I've only been doing it since the summer of last year, but I've uh, been in every article since. And uh, I'm really excited uh, at the opportunities to, one, put the word out there, and two, to kind of give back to the community, the investigative community, because at some point I've been an investigator for 19 years now, and at some point um, I didn't have experience. Someone gave me right. a shot, right? And exactly. um, I've had the ability to tap into resources, you know, communities, uh, peers, and so forth, and just to, you know, get from point A to point B, you know, from yesterday to today. And I really enjoy mentoring other people, you know, and doing what I can to, to help them out as well. And I'm super excited that uh, this month for the uh, January and February issue, I'm actually going to be on the cover of PI Magazine uh, talking about a new opportunity that I've uh, ventured into, and I'm really excited about that. Wow. That's great. So are you able to talk about that yet on this show, the new yeah, opportunity? Yeah, yeah, I can. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, definitely. Since you, since you brought it up, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So, so another one of my uh, many billets is um, I'm uh, on the executive uh, council or executive board with uh, CyberPol, the executive committee with CyberPol. I'm also on 
the executive board of the Strategic Advisory Council with Cyberpol. And Cyberpol, if you don't know, is akin to like Interpol and Europol, right? Um, they're fairly exclusive to online. That's why they got the name Cyberpol, but uh, we there's also caveats to that. Um, so I did a presentation in mid-October of last year at their first, I believe it was their first virtual summit, and it was a fantastic setup. It was um, cyber speakers from all over the globe and, um, you know, just talking about different types of cyber attacks, right, how to identify them, uh, you know, what's on the rise, and then how to mitigate or prevent some of them, right? Um, so it was really great, and I did a topic on social engineering. I like to pride myself on really highlighting the nexus between the cyber world and the physical world because cyber is like the hot topic, right? You get mainstream news reporting about, well, this bank, you know, lost 100 million uh, personnel files or, or personal data information, right? Or this mm-hmm. company, that company, Twitter last year with their hack in, in July, right? So that's really, it's very interesting and that's very uh, justified to be highlighted, but a lot of things that don't get highlighted are involved in the social engineering component of it. So what is that? That's the legwork that's done by the inevitable cyber attackers before they launch their, their true cyber attack. So, and it, it comes in different forms, right? So that's, you know, um, going out and doing cyber stalking, uh, phishing is what we know, PH, right? Phishing, phishing, mm-hmm. smishing, and all those words sound really silly, but they have really pointed agendas. You have honey trapping and you have uh, serendipitous, supposedly serendipitous meetings where people just kind of run into you at the store or whatever like that. But they're really trying to tailor their inevitable cyber attack to you to net in as much information as possible. Because phishing email, I'm sure all of us, if not all of us, then many of us, have seen a phishing email, right? Hey, this is the king of wherever location, and I need I want to send you some money, but I need you to send me to cover the fees or whatever it may be, right? Give right. Me bank account right. information. So it's just phishing, literally phishing for more information from you or information from you. So you have that. you got your whale phishing, which is the same thing, but it really targets CEOs and C-suite people, right? So it's a larger fish kind of so to speak, right? Um, So they really try to net in as much information about you, the ultimate victim, for their inevitable cyber attack because what does that do? Well, that makes it more pointed and it makes it more believable, right, than this junky phishing email that has spelling errors in it and seems to come out of Africa or, you know, India or wherever it may be, right? Um, So it's a really tailored process and it gets you to really believe in it. It lends itself to truer validity, right? So then you're more inclined on believing that and therefore you're more inclined to give more, right? Um, So social engineering is, um, I I believe it's been involved in over 90% of the successful cyber attacks that we know of that we've heard of on the mainstream um, media, right? Um, what they don't talk about is the social engineering component of that. And that's very critical to really understand that because these tricksters, they're really getting smart. They're really getting smart at what they're doing. You got deep fake videos now, which is terrifying. Um, you look at the video and you swear that person said what they said. And sure enough, yeah. you know, you dig into the analysis of it, the metadata and so forth, and you find out, no, that was a, a, a manipulated uh, video. So the whole thing of this, excuse me, the whole thing of this is the social engineering portion of it, right? And that, in my opinion, is just as important as the cyber attack. And I like to preach about that with the education 
the prevention mechanisms and mitigation if it does happen to you. So back to the question, excuse me for veering off here, but back to the question. Um, so I did that with them with Cyberpol in mid-October. Um, they liked what I had to say, and I was really appreciative to them bringing me on for that uh, one-off engagement. And then I, you know, got pulled into being a part of their committee to help build it out. So that's what uh, that's what this article is going to be about later this month for the January February issue about me, you know, with Cyberpol and them uh, allowing me to help build up their uh, their organization. I'm super thrilled super. that they uh, and very humble that they selected me to help. Super. That well, you know, I've noticed, and maybe in the past uh, six months, that there's been I re- I receive constantly receive text messages saying things like. Oh, you're such a great customer. We're going to give you an iPhone, or um, you're going to get. You know, we don't have your correct address. We have a package to deliver to you, and it's and and they're all fake <laughs> because I know this isn't happening, so I don't respond, of course. Yeah, and that's that's scary and disturbing because when did they really spring up? I mean, heavily, right? It was around uh-huh. the holiday times. So what are you expecting around the holiday time? Especially right. in this environment, you're expecting, you're expecting packages, right? So you uh-huh. really got to keep an eye on what packages that you're getting if you order from Amazon or wherever. You really want to make sure that you rely on the, the true resources of those orders, such as those emails from Amazon. Here you go. Here's your package. You know, you can track it. It's ETA at this day, right? Versus those texts that come in because even by opening up the test to, to the, the text to see what it's about, you could be unraveling something inside of your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the obvious one is, hey, don't click on something that comes to you in a text, right? That's the easy one. Just don't do that. Um, but once you even open up that text, that could um, start sending some stuff your way that you really don't want to invite into your phone. And, you know, nowadays, <laughs> phones are not just phones. They're mini computers, you know, exactly. so they can be hacked. Uh, in lots of different ways and terrifying ways, too, if you ask me. Um, and uh, you just, you have to be careful. You have to put an antivirus on your phone. You have to have a webcam camera on your phone, fo- camera on your cover, excuse me, on your uh, phone. You have to have a mic disabling device on your phone. And it's, it's an inconvenience. It's the whole security versus convenience, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's balance is super old. How much convenience do we want to give away for security and vice versa? How much security do we want to give away for convenience, right? Um, It really holds true to your phone. And nowadays people do more on their phone than they do on laptops. So, you know, you really want to be cognizant of those things. If you, you I I actually just got one uh, a couple days ago. I got something that was really weird. It was a text and you get the pre, you know, you set it up so you get the preview as it's coming in, so you can uh, really kind of assess it as it's coming in. And I couldn't tell if it was something that it was talked about a package. I couldn't tell if it was something that I ordered or not, but I deleted it because I figured, mm-hmm. you know what, I'll rely on my email from Amazon. I, you know, right. order from Amazon a lot, like everything else, uh, and that's it. And you know what, if I miss information about a package, then I, you know, I'm not really going to care too much about that because anything that I deem important, like, hey, where's this package that I'm really, you know, depending on, I'm going to know about that, you know. So it's really just beneficial to, and I'm not saying delete all your text messages, but I'm just saying be very cautious when you get messages like that because, again, even if you bring it up to read the text message and you don't click on that link, you could be unraveling some information that you don't want into your, uh, your, your phone there. So I have to ask you, Chris, do you have all these protections on your phone? 
Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I really, really suggest, strongly suggest that people invest in that as well. Super low cost or something that you could really help protect yourself from uh, an ad hoc uh, cyber attack or a setup, a full-blown setup for people targeting you for an ultimate cyber attack that's going to cost you a lot more than an ad hoc one. So just to, to review, the, the things that you should put on your, your phone, your smartphone, to protect you are what? So we're talking antivirus. Again, it's, it's a computer in your hands nowadays, so treat it like a computer. We all have antivirus software on our computers. Do the same with your phone. And then do, you know, get a, a webcam cover um, uh, for your phone as well, and you got to be cognizant that you have two lenses. You have the front lens and the back lens. And it can be bulky and, and a little bit inconvenient, but that's the whole balance of security and inconvenience or convenience that we talked about. And then the other thing is, you know, there's um, there's physical devices that people sell um, that plug right into your mic, uh, uh, and uh, you can go ahead and block anyone listening in on your microphone because there are people that can listen in through your microphone without you noticing. There are people that can turn on your webcam without you knowing, and they will watch and listen to you uh, without you really knowing that they're there. So you want to protect yourself. If they're going to tap into your camera, hey, go ahead. You're going to see a nice black screen, right, because you got your camera cover on there. Um, if they're going to try to tap into your microphone, they're not going to hear anything because it's going to be plugged up. So, again, I, I, I don't – I want to be careful because I don't want to paint a, a, a very um, despairing – situation with phones and connectivity and stuff like that. Um, but I just want to alert people. You know, I want to give them the information. They can decide what they want to do with it. Again, everyone's going to balance what I feel comfortable with laying out into the online world versus what I really feel like I, sh- I should uh, safeguard. Well, this may sound really, really naive, and it probably does, but uh, where do you go to get a, a webcam cover for a phone? Oh, that's super simple. I mean, it's literally just Googling stuff. I think I bought, um, I think I bought my a package of webcam covers on Am- uh, covers, excuse me, on Amazon. I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, for, you get a lot of stuff off of Amazon. For a, for a um, cell phone. Yeah, I believe. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. For, for a cell, for a cell phone. phone. Yes. Okay. Huh. Uh, I mean, I have never heard of this before. So thank you. I appreciate that. Um, because, you know, no I mean, we, we, again, we, we, we take we our... We have two lenses on our camera. Sorry? Or three. On some iPhones, there's three. Three cameras. Yes. And, we, and we take the phones in the restroom, right? All the time. I know. And that's, yeah, that's, that's disgusting. But, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's what people do. <laughs> Yeah, we had just just the other day we had a Zoom meeting going on, and one of the people took took his he had to go to the restroom and took his phone in and forgot to turn everything off. It was was quite an event. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, moving right along, uh, let's talk about international investigations. Um, so, Chris, you know how did you, I mean? It seems like such a uh, a stretch to go from doing Facebook investigations to international investigations. So how did that happen? No, it's a, I, I hear your point, but uh, no, I mean, when I was at Facebook, I was headquartered in, you know, Menlo Park, California there. And um, 
we manage investigations internationally. You know, I mean, we might be doing something on the other side of the world. Uh, we just, you know, we were internal investigators, you know, and we handed company uh, situations as they arose. And obviously, Facebook is a global platform, right? It's a global company. So, you know, there were times that I wasn't just working in California, right? Um, uh, so, you know, and even prior to then, uh, when I was in Chicago, you know, I was with another uh, PI firm, and I managed uh, you know, hundreds of investigators on global operations. So, you know, I would be in Chicago managing an investigation in Turkey, managing an investigation in South Africa, Australia, um, Indonesia, and so forth. So, it wasn't um, it, it wasn't uh, foreign for me to kind of pivot from Facebook into this. API, all points investigations, to do global investigations, right? Um, but, you know, how I did that with, with this one, with API, um, you know, I just springboarded from Facebook into my, my own company here. And, and excuse me, I want to back up a little bit. All points investigations is co-owned, right? It's me and my partner, Mike Diorio Jr. Uh, he's a, <clears throat> excuse me, he's a retired Secret Service agent and Customs and Border Patrol agent. Um, he and I own the company collectively. And obviously he has a plethora of uh, investigative experience uh, as, as do I. Um, and uh, we combine our efforts to really put forth a full throttle um, kind of investigative apparatus for different types of companies and different types of investigations, right? And even individuals. Um, but back to your question, international investigations, you know, I know there's, I have PIs that come up to me and they're like, hey, Chris, how did you grow from this to that inside of two years to include working internationally? I mean, right now we're working cases in Canada, we're working cases here in the States, we're working cases in, in uh, China, Hong Kong, uh, Costa Rica, you know, so... You know, how did I do that? It was, it was really just leaning on my, excuse me, my network of investigators mm-hmm. and experience with yep. working international files. What's interesting to me is these PIs that say, hey, Chris, how do you do in international investigations? I asked them, okay, have you ever gotten wind of an international investigation or an investigation that prospectively led to an international scope, right? And they, a lot of them say, yeah, they, they did, but they had to shoot it down. I say, why do you do that? You're asking me about international investigations, how you break into it, but you're getting a file that either is international or can lean into an international investigation, but you shoot it down. It's counterintuitive, right? And usually they say, in ver- some variations, they say, well, they don't know how to do international investigations. That's a very fine point, and I completely understand that. But, you know, the geography of it isn't, doesn't really make too much difference in your methodology yeah. of operations, of managing it, and so forth. Now, you have to make sure that you abide by the in-country laws, privacy laws, and some countries even flat-out outlaw private investigators. You can't call yourself an investigator inside China, for instance. Um, right. So, you know, you've just got to make sure that you're very keen on those laws, right, uh, overseas laws, uh, before you do something that you're not supposed to be doing, just because the information is available doesn't mean you, you can have the authority to get it, right, or entitlement to get it. Um, but, yeah, there's lots of different international resources. You know, there's uh, World Association of Detectives, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's the oldest, uh, it's the oldest or at least one of the oldest uh, organizations for private investigators. You know, there's AS-IS. They have an international chapter as well or resource for international investigations, and uh, you, know, you just build up your network. We at API, we have investigators in 49 of the 50 states here in the U.S., and then we have investigators in more than 100 com- countries. 
And wow. how is that? Well, we work with our investigators and, uh, you know, to be honest, me and Mike collectively, you know, I've been in the field for 19 years. He's been in the field for, I think, over 40 years. Um, and we have our Rolodex of resources that we've collected or amassed inside, you know, the, that number of years, right? Um, so great. we lean on them and give them, you know, yeah, just offer them the same uh, kind of relationship, just under a different umbrella, all points of investigations, and then we, we move forward. So a lot of these folks that we've worked with already in the past, right? Um, so we just brought exactly. them on for our uh, vetted contractors. Now, if you don't have that network of resources, right, I think that's what we're kind of talking about. How does someone in Ohio get into international investigations or someone out of Minnesota or wherever it may be, right? I mean, you know, you can lean on these organizations first and foremost. You can lean on your local associations. You know, each state has their association. Then you have your regional associations. Then you have your countrywide uh, private investigator associations. I mean, networking is key because, it, you know, you can be as great as you are with, within the confines of your own skill set, right? And that's awesome. And if you want to rock and roll that, you know, from start to finish, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to do something else, if you want to do something more such as international investigations, I mean, there's just a great opportunity to network out there and just multiply your uh, your uh, force of effectiveness by other people's skill set, right? Um, right, so, and right, some Chris, of these yeah. Excuse me a second. I want let's come. We need to take a real quick break. I want to come back to this because this networking uh, thing that we're talking about right now is very important. So let let's take a quick break. I'm here with Christopher sure. Salgado, and we'll be right back. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll free one eight six six four seven two five seven eight seven one eight six six four seven two fifty seven eighty seven. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're back. I'm here with Christopher Salgado, Chris Salgado, the founder of, co-founder, I guess, of All Points Investigations. Um, and we were just talking about networking, the importance of networking. And I, I guess I can't stress enough what uh, you just said, Chris, because the networking, like with the World Association of Detectives, the Council of International Investigators, you mentioned, as is, um, and there's, of course, associations in other countries, like in uh, the UK, in Europe, and and you're right, some people in those countries cannot be called private investigators, even though they are. Uh, they have to kind of yeah. be under a, a, some kind of a cloud where they call themselves something else. Uh, but the but the networking is really important, and it's and it's not just about doing investigations. It may be giving a referral to one of your clients that needs something done in another country, even if you, and if you don't feel comfortable doing it. So there there are really good reasons to belong to these associations, and 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 once we get back to having uh, conferences in person, uh, that networking in person is also critical, because that's you know. It's all about relationships, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, by having those relationships, it's just they're just force multipliers to what you can do, right? Like I said, by having the network, by leaning in on these, these folks internationally, it doesn't water down your skill set. It doesn't say you can't do something, right? It just allows you to really bulk up your ability to service your clients in a variety of ways that you might not be able to do individually. And that might just be as, as simple as, hey, I can't do an investigation inside Turkey, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a really good thing for everybody to network. And to be plain and simple, I mean, we can all learn from each other too. And we can benefit even more because, like you said, you've got referrals going back and forth. I mean, I get referrals from uh, PIs uh, regularly, you know, um, because, okay, Chris can, you know, do dark, dark web investigations or, you know, can do really deep dives on online investigations. So, I mean, there's just that camaraderie and that kind of um, uh, exchange, you know, on, mm-hmm. on ideas as well as business opportunities. Exactly. So when you, when you were talking about the countries that you're currently doing investigations in now, uh, what what kind of span of investigations does that cover? What kinds of investigations? So we do both cyber and physical investigations. So cyber is the obvious one because of my background, even outside of Facebook, you know, doing, like I said, doing cyber investigations beforehand. But we, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of our business is based on brand protection investigations. So IP infringement, counterfeits, we chase down counterfeiters. Uh, pirates, uh, uh, streaming pirates and uh, online pirates, stuff like that. Um, we do surveillance, SIU, missing persons, supply chain investigations. We did a cult case um, out of Costa Rica, which was a pretty interesting one. And, again, that was a referral from another PI. Um, she said, hey, Chris, mm-hmm. can you help me out with this client? And I took the client on, and it turned out to be a pretty pretty interesting case. So those are the types of cases that we handle, the cyber and physical investigations, right? And like I said, we have investigators in more than 100 countries across the globe, 
And, uh, you know, we sure do hot and heavy cyber investigations, but when we get to a point where we've really exhausted our cyber efforts and we find uh, an address where we need to serve a cease and desist because someone's selling counterfeit or we need to conduct a raid with law enforcement and seize counterfeit merchandise, well, we need to lean on somebody inside that region, right? I'm, it's not really cost effective, uh, even withstanding um, or notwithstanding COVID, right? Um, it's just not cost effective to send me from here to, I keep using Turkey, um, you know, right. South Africa. I can do it, but I can service my client, you know, more efficiently by bringing on my investigator inside South Africa to do just the same thing, right? So we do those investigations that bring us to the doorstep of someone, literal doorstep of someone, and do those physical investigations. And the types of clients that we service, they're, they run the gamut, really. They're Fortune 100 companies, they're pharmaceutical industry, entertainment industry out of Los Angeles, consumables, streaming companies, like I said, luxury brands, insurance, lots of different types of uh, companies that we, uh, that we service. Um, so you you actually mentioned you mentioned you had uh, investigators in what did you say forty nine states. Um, are these formal agreements yeah. with investigators, or are they employees, or or how does that work? No, we're still small potatoes, so we're 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 using contractors. Um, so we're using contractors. We have an agreement with certain investigators that we vetted. Uh, made sure that they're licensed individually and so forth. So, um, and, and our clients know that, um, you know, because some, some clients are a little picky. They used to be more picky about it before, maybe like seven, ten years ago, uh, with mm-hmm. not using uh, contractors, right? Everybody had to, ha- had to be an employee that was on any of their case files. And a lot of this really kind of stemmed off of insurance investigations, um, but it's, it's changed quite differently now. Um, and um, a lot of companies allow you to use contractors. And certainly ones that don't, we're, we don't have as a client because I'm not interested in pulling the wool over on somebody and saying somebody's an employee versus a contractor. Um, but, yeah, that's what we do. We set up contracted relationships with uh, individually licensed uh, investigators, making sure that we're, you know, caveating appropriately to the, you know, different state laws, right? Um, but, yeah, that's how we're able to maximize our reach because I'm in Florida Companies based out of Florida, but we're able to service people with a California investigation, with a uh, Maryland investigation, and so forth. Right. So, okay. So, say you get a due diligence investigation out of someplace in Europe. Where do you start? What do you do first? So, I am, and for those that have read the PI Magazine articles of mine, they know this already, but I have written a few articles, like I said, in PI Magazine, and I think I've said it in half of those, if not all of them, actually. Um, I'm not a big advocate to say, hey, go to this subscriptive database. You know, they, they're, they're rocking. They're hot and heavy, right? We know the big ones out there that people pay for and run background checks on people, um, but I, I never really subscribe or rather, excuse me, I subscribe to them, but I never really advocate for too many of them because... You know, things can change. I mean, we're talking about the Internet. We're talking about cyber and tech, right? I mean, your resource for today could be, you know, your error code tomorrow, right? Or they can fall apart tomorrow. And no one's really been consistent 100% of the time. So, um, you know, I I don't really kind of promote them. But uh, I do have a springboard that I start off of. So you asked about a European investigation. And with that, that... uh, caveat that I just mentioned, I personally don't believe that there's a greater database out there than Google. Google is the best database that you can hope for. Now, 
So how would I employ my, my tactics with that European investigation, right? Um, first thing I would do is hit the search engines, hit the meta search engines. A lot of people don't know about, about meta search engines. You know, you employ your Boolean string searches. You know, that's when you have tons of characteristics attached to one search string, right? And, and it's really identifying what you really want to seek because a lot of times, and you know this, a lot of times the information is not hard to find. That's not the problem. The problem is sifting out your intended information among the masses and literal millions of pieces of information out there that come back through your search inquiries, right, through Google. Um, you know, but there's other search engines, too. I mean, you've got to make sure that you're pointed with that. And, you know, a, a really aggressive OSINT, um, open source intelligence uh, investigation, uh, springboards off of not just Google. You know, Google's a big one, but not just Google. Um, not just one subscripted database, um, although that's that's outside of OSINT, but you got to make sure that you maintain relevance. You got to make sure that you're up to date with, you know, with all these different uh, websites coming aboard and the ones that are weaker today than they were yesterday, right? Just as what I was talking about before. Um, so you really have to have a large variety of resources to really roll out an aggressive OSINT uh, methodology or SOP, right? Um, and that's going to come through your pointed searches. That's going to come from your Google dorking and your meta searches, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so it's really key to really involve yourself in that. And if you know, if you can read code, I mean, you have a lot more opportunity to you. I mean, I can read code as well. You know, you got your JSON language, your Base64 language, uh, your HTML. I mean, if you can read code on a website, you're going to get a lot more information uh, than you can if you don't. Now, I'm not a computer guy, uh, honestly, and this is going to sound weird, uh, but computers bore me, and I am not an IT person. <laughs> um, you know, but I don't have an IT degree, but I, I surely know how to dig deeply on somebody, right, through the cyber world. And um, you just have to make sure that you're able to, again, maintain relevance with, with your skill set and just be, to, be better tomorrow than you are today. Um, and again, if you can read code, that's you, you've got a leg up on a lot of people um, because, for instance, Facebook, right, the graph search, that went away and people threw their arms up in the air and said, what, what am I going to do? You know, the Facebook search is, is gone now. Well, the, you know, if, if you, yes, that particular specific uh, capability uh, was washed away. Um, but there's there's other ways of of getting information uh, on you know various platforms. Well, you know, Chris, you used a word that, um, and it's also in your article, uh, Google dorking that I'm not familiar with. Could you could you tell tell us what that is? Yeah, so Google dorking sounds silly, but uh, it's really effective. Um, Google dorking is when you really. It's kind of smart searching, if you will. Um, so anyone can Google somebody, right? And everyone's Googled somebody. But it's a way to Google somebody or something um, with really pointed searches, with really um, polished, uh, um, what am I trying to say, characteristics um, to really pull back the information. Because, again, a lot of times it's not – the problem is not a lack of information, the problem is sifting out your intended information mm. among the masses of information, right, that's being given to you after your search inquiry has gone through. Um, so it's going to be, you know, using your quotes. It's going to be looking for certain file types. 
Um, it's going to be using the not arrangement. Uh, it's a lot of different caveats to your regular search mechanisms, right? So that, that is very effective for doing, rolling out an aggressive OSINT operation. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it comes with practice for sure. Um, but okay. that's definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. So you just said looking for different file types. Give me an example. So if you're looking, for instance, for an Excel sheet, right, and uh, you, you believe it to be out there, you know it's out there, right, there's a certain command um, that you can use inside Google that gives you results with just Excel sheets, that gives you results with just PDFs, that gives you results with just TXT text files, that gives you results with doc files. Um, so there's manipulations that you do upon those commands, um, and that's involved in the Google dorking um, lessons, right? Um, you know, but that's a way to, like I said, sift among the mass of information that you have to really point to uh, to what you're looking for. And then you've got doxing. You know, doxing is something that you don't want to get involved with. You don't want to dox people. Um, excuse me, let me back up here. Do you know what doxing is? No. <laughs> I was just going to say, what is doxing? <laughs> No, I, I'm glad I asked that question. So doxing is when somebody targets you and for whatever reason and they blow up your information online. So they say, you know, oh, this is the information. Here's Francie's address. Here's her home phone number. Here's her social security number. Here's her kids' names. Here's where their kids go to school, whatever it may be, right? So plethora of PII, personal identify information, um, put broadcast online, right? And that's can be pretty scary because that gets yep. into the nexus of what I kind of preach about the cyber world meets the physical world. Because if that information is out there on the cyber world, in cyber world, someone can literally end up on your doorstep. And we had plenty of examples of people doing that during the, uh, the riots this summer. Um, people were doxing cops, right, and um, other people as well. And people were literally following up on that information, throwing bricks through windows. Um, and, um, you know, again, the cyber world meets the physical world. Then you can get into real harm's way. Um, and that's something that's terrifying. So if somebody doxes you, you know, you, you, obviously you're never going to be a subject of that. But if that information is out there, that could be pivotal information for your, your case, right? Now, I want to answer a huge caveat here. You want to make sure that you only grab the information that you're legally entitled to. You want to run it by whomever you need to, uh, such as an attorney for your firm and so forth, because sometimes you can click on a link, and just by clicking on that link, you violated a law, right? So you got to be really careful knowing at knowing the difference between what information you can capture and what information you can't capture. Again, just because the information is there doesn't mean you're entitled to it. So really, you know, cross your, uh, your T's and dot your I's with the legality of it that's here in the U.S. as certainly well as international investigations because you've got GDPR out there, which is a really aggressive privacy law, uh, you know, out of Europe, and you want to make sure that you abide by that stuff, right? Again, here you're in the U.S., you're searching for stuff, uh, you know, globally. That doesn't mean that you're... Um, you know, you're, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You're, you can't get charged with something, right? You can't, you can't, you're prone to not violating a law, right? Um, so you want to just be very careful with those things. Okay, Chris. So we, we only have actually maybe about seven minutes left. Uh, we've, ha- we've covered mm-hmm. a lot of ground here, and which I really appreciate. But so for people that are interested in starting or del- sticking their toe into the water of international investigations, 
what tips would you give them, uh, like a, a one, two, three, that they can start out with? Sure. Um, so one of them, simply put, they could reach out to me, um, and I can help them uh, get locked and loaded with some resources, too. Um, they could reach out to their local organizations, um, you know, their PI chapters. Um, they could reach out to the individual, excuse me, they could reach out to the individual um, uh, organizations that we spoke of, World Association of Detectives, as is, and there's other ones out there that you mentioned as well. They could even reach out to their uh, their clients and see if their current clients and see if there's an appetite at their current with their current clients to say, hey, I've been rocking and rolling for you inside of Texas for years. You know, is there, you know, because most companies are global that we're dealing with, right? Uh, is there mm-hmm. an appetite for me to help you out in Canada? You know, start small, right? Canada or Mexico, whatever it may be, right? <clears throat> but even beyond that, you know, there's plenty of clients or would-be clients that have concerns that could they, they could use help with outside of the, the borders of the U.S., right? So I would say those are the three items that I would kind of preach to them to uh, to really get it going. And, and I really don't want to water down how, you know, building it, how it is building an operation from stateside or, you know, in one state to an international operation. There's a lot of things that have to happen, a lot of things you have to think about. But it really just takes that due diligence and that decision to say, you know what, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to seek out the resources because I know they're out there. Interesting. Um, so you talk about the investigator's toolbox. How do you, mm-hmm. how do you utilize that? Yeah, that's something that uh, Matthew, uh, the founder of the Investigative tool- Toolbox, uh, that's something that he brought to my attention, and I really appreciated him doing that. And uh, it's a, it's one of the many resources that we're talking about where you network with PIs, and it's an educational system as well because they've got uh, they've got articles embedded inside of that community and that that program. Uh, they've got uh, training videos as well. They've got a forum where you can go ahead and ask people some questions. Like I said, lean on someone for their expertise or even offer referrals to people or even receive referrals uh, from people. So it's, it's a really good networking system that does more than just networking. It also offers the education to build your skill set up. And you're referring to Matthew Speyer out of New York. Uh, Matthew, Matt also has a, uh, a podcast called PI Perspectives. Have you been on that yet? Yeah, yeah, he had me on, I think it was sometime late last year, um, and uh, really enjoyed the show, really enjoyed the opportunity. It was nice speaking with him. Yeah, he's doing a good job with that. And the Investigator's Toolbox, for those of you who haven't heard about this, I would I would uh, say either reach out to me or reach out to Matt Spear in New York or even Chris uh, to check into it because it, it is a very good resource. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it in your article, Chris. It's good. So, yeah, yeah, I definitely thought it was, it was great stuff. So do you have a, uh, a situation or a story you can tell us without disclosing names that of an investigation that was that turned differently than you thought, but you utilized the tools that you have at your disposal? Yeah, I mean, we've got, got plenty of those. I mean, so there was one case that we chased down a hacker, a very well-known hacker uh, that was pirating um, some online content to from a client of ours. Uh, it was a company like, it wasn't Netflix, but it was a company like that, where it was an online streaming company. Um, and um, 
there was an issue where an individual was pirating their content and then putting it on his own server and putting it out there, you know, uh, unsanctioned, of course, and mm-hmm. several times, several days before it was even supposed to be released. So that one was was an interesting one, and I was given the file and told, okay, here's the known username. We don't know who this person is. We don't know much about this person. So we dug really heavily into it, and I have to say that was that was a very lengthy investigation because this guy, this hacker, was really good at what he did. And not only was he really good at hacking, but he was really good at covering his tracks. He put up a lot of red herrings and simply just dead ends, um, misleading us and just, you know, <laughs> kind of taking the wool out, the, the rug from underneath us. And we chased him down across the globe. I mean, from California to Hong Kong to, uh, I think it was in Vietnam as well, um, all over the place. And uh, sure enough, we dug heavily into this individual. He had no idea who this person was. He did a really good job of keeping a one arm's distance between his re- his um, real world real world identity and his online persona, right? Hmm. But he made a mistake because as good as you are as a hacker, as whatever title you have in a company, we're all still humans, and humans make mistakes. Right. So it was our due diligence that really unveiled this critical mistake that he made, and by searching you know items on the deep web, we were able to. Co- and this was. This was a lengthy investigation. I'm summing it up here for, for conversational purposes. But, um, you know, we came across a document that he, um, he filled out and he tied his real-world identity to his online persona. So that was, perfect. that was almost literally a smoking gun to tie the online person to the real-world person. And that was a huge win for us. And I was very proud at us for being able to uncover that. And certainly the client was really, really ecstatic with us. I mean, this individual was lifting millions of dollars from this company because of what he was doing. So um, that was a really huge win for us. And uh, that definitely employed a serious amount of intense cyber uh, chase downs uh, on a very well-known hacker. Um, you know, and that, that was a very exciting case. Good for you. Uh, we have just a couple of minutes left, but did, was he sanctioned in any way? What happened to him? So I can't say too much about it because it's still open, okay. but um, right. I can say that uh, I can say that the client really appreciated our results and they're interested in our results. Great. Christopher Salgado, thank you so much for being on the show today. We are at the end of our time, uh, but it's been delightful. And uh, for the rest of you out there, it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 